According to Race to Lead, research that the Building Movement Project published in 2016 and then revisited in 2019, women of color are less likely than white women, white men, and men of color to attain leadership positions at nonprofits and particularly large nonprofits. Women of color were also most likely to say that both race and gender have had negative impacts on their career advancement. However, albeit slowly, we are starting to see some progress across the industry. Today, we are going to hear some insights and advice firsthand from a practitioner on race, gender, and closing the gap in nonprofit and philanthropic leadership. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Inspired Investing. I'm your host, Claire Gola, Head of Endowment and Foundation Advisory Services at Bernstein. This is the podcast where we strive to connect and share insights with listeners like you who are engaged in the nonprofit and broader philanthropy sector, or who just want to learn more. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Ashley Davis, Senior Diversity and Inclusion Manager for Alliance Bernstein. Ashley, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Claire. Great to be here with you. Ashley, you've been interacting with leadership of key institutions across sectors throughout your entire career. You've been with the Obama administration, you've been in a leadership role at Cargill, and now with AB, you are, among other things, the lead on diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies and community partnerships in key, key markets, really, for us across the country. Um, can you just walk us through briefly the types of nonprofits and associations and other philanthropic entities that you've engaged with over the years? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, you know, about 15, actually closer to 20 years ago almost, um, but during my time at, in Pittsburgh, I had an opportunity to start working with uh, a company, organization, rather a nonprofit uh, by the name of uh, A Plus Schools. And their focus is around equity and education in the city, which was a fantastic opportunity for me uh, being a Pitt student at the time. From there, you know, I've worked with organizations in, in the nonprofit space and foundations ranging from you know the Coral Center for Civic Leadership, University uh, Legal Services in Washington D.C., uh, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, uh, the True Colors Fund, uh, which is uh, founded and led uh, by Cindy Lauper, uh, Georgia Appleseed Center for Law and Justice, which focuses on heirs' property, which is a, a very important issue uh, that that impacts. Uh, African-Americans quite disproportionately as you think about land rights and uh, property issues specifically in the Southeast, but also nationally. Um, but, uh, you know, Claire, as I step back and I think about that thread that connects all of the, the energy that I've, and, and kind of, you know, you think about you know, a little bit of sweat equity here, it's not anything about a feather in my hat at all. It's really all centered around the fact that there are a lot of organizations around the, the company in the country rather, that are interested in doing the right thing, but always are looking for people to come in with different perspectives and, and quite frankly, different vantage points. And it's been uh, quite a wonderful opportunity. That's fantastic. I'm curious, um, Ashley, to get your take on this. So both the nonprofit sector and philanthropy really more broadly have always been biased, right, towards white, male, cisgender, sort of the old club of leadership that we would you know think about. And there's this irony that that many of us are have been aware of for a long time that in so many organizations they have a mission right to support underserved or underrepresented communities and create social change 
And yet in the board and executive ranks, there's very little representation of either the communities they're meant to serve or the values that they're really claiming as an institution. So a lot of your work involves exploring unconscious bias, encouraging really inclusive cultures where different backgrounds and perspectives are valued, as you just mentioned. So how do you see the politics of identity and dynamics of power and privilege really coming into play specifically in the nonprofit sector? You know, there couldn't be a better time to have this conversation, Claire. One, because it's not something that you can check a box, and we've likely, many of us have heard that. You can't check a box and do this and then, you know, set it down and say, well, you know, I've done that, right? It's not like doing your taxes once a year and then it's done until the next time uh, the year rolls around. This is cultural competency that we're talking about. This is a lifelong journey. So long as we are breathing air through our lungs, right, we are going to be on this lifelong journey to uh, be both present and aware of how we show up in this world. And nonprofits and foundations are finding not just that they can have very beautiful and purposeful mission statements and value statements, but that they also have to show that same purpose in their own executive board space, staff, development, retention, their donors, their funders, but also the communities they serve are holding them accountable. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Because we are stronger as a result of that accountability. But there's also another key component of it, that all of this is a journey, not a destination. You can't feel exhausted by the fact that you haven't gotten there over the last 365 days. Let me make sure you feel very comfortable hearing this from me. Just hear this from me. This has been a tough year for everyone. We just got through the toughest year of many of our lives. And we got through it not simply by snapping our fingers and getting to December, but through resilience, through learning and unlearning through being both courageous and brave, but also through sometimes getting back up and dusting ourselves off, but also being very aware that we can no longer call ourselves color blind, but rather color brave. And so those are the types of dynamics that we have to be aware of because power and privilege are not dirty words. What do you mean by that? Privilege is not something we can run away from. Like I am a black lesbian from the South, raised by two blue collar workers that did, did, not have, did, did not have and still don't have a college degree. And yet and still, I'm incredibly privileged. So who am I to run away from that privilege in 2021? I have to be aware of it. We have to be bold. And the more we, wanna, we run away from it, the more that boomerang comes right back at us. And so we have to stand in this space and say that we're going to do this tough work. Thank you. Yeah, that's um, there's a lot to unpack there. I think especially as, you know, with the word privilege, I think about the boards of directors of, of organizations that we work with. And so many boards are asking, you know, they're asking us for advice on, you know, how do we uh, create more representation on our board of directors and in our leadership that is reflective of our values around diversity and equity inclusion, or that is reflective of and and really hears the voices of the communities that we are you know supporting. Can you tell us about the consultative work that you've been doing with AV's clients around unconscious bias? Sure, and I'll tell you a quick, simple story here. A father and his and his son are involved in a horrific car crash. And the man died at the scene. 
But when the child arrived at the hospital and was rushed into the operating room, the surgeon pulled away and said, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. Well, how can that be? There's a lot of different answers that this could be, and likely your mind is stirring. It usually takes two to and a half to three minutes for people to land on the answer. And the answer is that the surgeon is the boy's mom. And why is it that it takes us two and a half to three minutes to get there? Because unconscious bias is in all of us. It doesn't care who we are, what we look like, where we come from, how we were raised. If you are breathing, then you have bias. And that means you have to be both conscious of it and moving away and towards it. And the only way for you to actually get beyond your own bias is to work it like a muscle. So our consultation offers three prongs, right? We look at cultural competency, that lifelong journey. We want to make sure that before we get started, that you understand that this isn't something where you're going to be able to say after 60 minutes, it's done and put it in a box. You can put it in the car or I can hang my hat on it. It's, it's taken care of. Two, that you have a commitment to the work ahead that yes, you can feel exhausted. Yes, you can feel fatigued, but you will not stop. And that you will be as serious about this, as committed as you are about your financial commitments, that you will be committed to this space. And thirdly, very important, that you will extend grace both to yourself and to those around you. Because we all have bias, yeah. right? If you're breathing, you have bias. But also, Claire, there's a space here where we have to realize that we all commit microaggressions. We're going to put our foot in our mouths. We're going to say and do things that are wrong. But some of us are taking up too much oxygen in the space and in the room. So we need to step aside and step away and be willing to take a different role in society. And that may just be because we have so much power and privilege and it's just time for us to step, step aside. That's so helpful. And here, here's what's really crazy, Ashley. I have been in conversations with you before where you've shared that story. And even this time, talk about needing to work these muscles a little bit more. This time, I still didn't think of the surgeon as being a mom. I thought to myself, oh, I'm clever. The, the boy <laughs> yeah. must have two dads, right? Like I didn't even. And then when yeah. you said it's his mom, I'm like, I've done that too. oh, you've got to be kidding me that I forget. So that's that's wild. It is really interesting, our um, unconscious bias. So thank you for for sharing that. And, I, you know, the idea of cultural competency commitment to the work ahead, um, you know, extending grace to ourselves. I think we're, we're sharing that with some of the, the boards and the leadership of, of organizations that we're working with because the work is hard, right? And it isn't just about go, you know, just grab a bunch of people who, um, you know, look different and like, that's not, that's not building, right. Cultural competency. That's not building, um, a, a true inclusive, um, a true inclusive organization. So, um, he, so I want to shift it to, you know, this this trend. We're starting to see more women of color moving into key C-suite roles at influential foundations and, and influential not-for-profits really across the country. I'm thinking about right here in my backyard in Chicago. We have, um, you know, um, women of color who are now at the helm at the Chicago Community Trust at Forefront, which is our regional association of grant makers, the Chicago Foundation for Women, which I will say has been a little bit of ahead of the curve there for a while, um, the Coleman Foundation. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? It's it's really um, quite extraordinary. Um, and so, 
I'm curious in your role as a strategic advisor meeting with Bernstein's nonprofit and foundation clients, do you sense an increasing readiness or openness to change and, and, and really why now? Yes. You know, Claire, there's certainly the readiness is there, you know, the, the energy and excitement is there. And I think that's incredible. And, and I'll, and I just want to, I want to acknowledge that there's, there, there are always some naysayers there that will say, well, you know, we've been doing this for 15 years and 10 years and in eight years, you just got into this last year, last summer or six months ago, you know, and, and I just want to, to acknowledge very quickly, um, because many of us have likely heard this growing up, that just because someone's been doing it longer than you doesn't mean they're doing it better than you. doesn't mean they're doing mm. it with the same level of intention. And it also doesn't mean that they're willing to make the right measure, action, take the right measure actions here. You shouldn't look around you and go, well, man, I feel rather sheepish here that everyone's been in the game here for 10 years but rather feel energized about the type of intentional action you're going to put into this work so that you continue to make put points on the board and get right into the game, right? I mean, that is exactly the type of energy you want to have here. Um, but I, I digress and I'll come back, I'll, I'll come back to your, your point here, your question rather, and answer, yes, there's readiness, but there's also measured caution. You know, there's caution in the air because Nonprofits and foundations remain, there's concern for obvious reasons with how their funders will uh, respond. And I can understand that. In fact, you know, I serve on a number of local and, and a few national boards myself and, and have had conversations with leadership, um, both in my board capacity and in some uh, spaces with uh, boards that I'm not uh, members of myself and, and have walked them through not just the current state, but the future state of, of giving, of philanthropy, so that they can understand that this is a multi-generational um, world that we're living in, and that we should be very thoughtful about what it takes to engage not just your current funders, but future funders as well, and clients as well. Secondly, I think it's important to think about, you know, what does it truly mean um, when you're saying that you want to um, both develop, promote, um, and retain women leaders at the highest ranks of your organization? You know, are, is your organization ready to, to make that meaningful change? And, and at times, a lot of organizations can say that, but when they realize the real investment that that takes, whether it's cultural assessments or um, at times realizing that your managers might not be uh, as trained as they need to be, or quite frankly, that your organization needs to do some soul searching about both the origins of where you where you started versus where along the way you got a little bit lost in the wilderness and need to have uh, a reckoning about where you want to be in the future. All of that takes time. And, it, and, and I think of last year around Memorial Day, and I, I like to think, I like to use the analogy of, I believe a lot of our, of, of our peers were hitting the snooze button on their alarm clock as it relates to a lot of really important issues. And right around Memorial Day with, with both um, the murder of George Floyd, and when we think about that of uh, Christian Cooper and, and what took place in Central Park, a lot of us found ourselves unable to hit that snooze button anymore, and we had to wake up. And whether we knew what the answer was or not, we said, look, wherever I sit, I want to be a part of something that is going to move the needle forward. 
And that is an exciting awareness, but also a very heavy responsibility. And so this conversation, these conversations that we're having with nonprofits and foundation clients is not a one size fits all that we absolutely uh, do more listening than talking in the beginning because we need to know where they are on their journey and where they want to be. Not every organization has the same aspirations and also not the same goals. Um, but also, let's be very honest that in the end, um, not just because uh, it's March and not just because, you know, um, we're both proud women, but the, every indicator tells us that the future is female. So as the cultural competency and awareness of boards that are primarily run by men become more aware of how profitable and successful their organizations can be with women at the helm, boardrooms and C-suites will continue to diversify. And I'm hopeful that we recognize that it's not enough that women alone succeed if that success, if that success doesn't include women of color, women with disability, disabilities, and trans women. The future is female and fierce, but only if it includes all of us. Then, Claire, then I believe it's un unstoppable. That's amazing. Thanks, Ashley. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more, um, but it's, it's interesting to see headlines around um, stepping into power, right? Especially as an outsider, in particular, a woman of color. Um, so, uh, you know, for instance, the Chronicle of Philanthropy just published an article, the challenges of being a woman leader of color, right? They cite the struggle to advance while noting that landing the top spot often, um, you know, opens the door to a whole new set of problems. So what are some of the key steps, Ashley, if you were to give advice, right, to a, to a not-for-profit or a foundation board of directors, what are some key steps that the organization can take to support a woman to lead, a woman of color, a woman um, of, you know, LGBTQ, trans, you know, what, what can, what can um, a board do to help uh, that woman um, elegantly and effectively, right, step into her power? Here's where I would say, first and foremost, if you already have women of color, um, you have women of color in your organization, no matter where they are, in your organization, whether they are, you know, in mid-level, um, you know, uh, director level, uh, support staff, if they are in your organization already, engage them, listen to them, ask them what it's like to work and be a member of your your organization. Ask them what it's like, and and listen and be prepared for those answers. And at times, and I will, and we just offer this space. It may be better if you want these honest answers to hire uh, outside organizations to, to welcome that, that, that space and that conversation uh, in a way that allows them to feel very comfortable sharing that feedback because you might not like all that you hear, right? And, and that's okay because in the end, you want to be stronger, but don't accept that feedback at the same time that you're saying, well, yeah, but that's, she's only saying that because of X. If that's the way you're responding to it already, mm -hmm. don't ask for it because you're not ready for it. Then you're not ready to receive it because that person's lived experience and what they're sharing with you. One, it takes trust for someone to be willing to share with you. And two, if you can't receive it, then you, again, you lose that trust in buckets and it can't be earned back quickly. Secondly, if you don't have women of color in your organization, 
at the time, at, at currently, um, don't believe right away that what you can do is simply um, look to bring one person in and solve all of your issues and put all of that on their shoulders. Don't don't do that because that puts too much weight and responsibility on that person to not only just do their job, but to also represent uh, the race and gender mm-hmm. and sector and demographics of, of, of millions <laughs> and billions of people. It's not fair, right? It's just know who wants to be that person, right? It's just not fair. But it is a unique opportunity for them to come in, should, should they you know, so choose, and open up their network to you. Because once they have that that warm, welcoming sense of belonging, which by the way takes time, they then will be the best uh, word of mouth for you. So, how can nonprofits broaden their board recruitment and staff hiring to attract talented candidates from among underrepresented groups? We hear that question a lot. I encourage you to engage with your local chambers of commerce authentically. Ask and listen, and come often to hear not just about how what you not to tell them what you need but rather to listen to what they have going on because they will point you in the direction of those women leaders women leaders of color that are poised to help bring you to the next level also look around you and find both the historically black colleges of union universities and hispanic serving institutions hsis that are near you and even within arm's reach of you there are so many institutions, right? And many of us know how mm-hmm. my alma mater, my law school, which I will always big up in every space, <laughs> but also, I also encourage you to go beyond that space, right? If you're in Nashville, like I grew up down the street from Tennessee State University, there's tons in, in, in the Midwest, along the coastal spaces, but there's also Hispanic serving institutions yeah. as well. There are 1890s uh, universities uh, as well, which um, have served traditionally uh, indigenous um, indigenous people as well and and serve as a great space for us to engage a space where again we have a very dismal representation of indigenous representation in the space and so that in that that space is there but there are also uh organizations there's executive leadership council Mm -hmm. elc um there is uh excuse me there's also the talent hub there are organizations that eat breathe and do this type of work every single day they're just waiting for you to pick up the phone, pick up the email and reach out to them. But you also have us as a partner. All of these partners that we're sharing today are partners of ours. And so we're whoever is a partner of Bernstein, we believe family is a capital F. And that is a cap, capital F meaning family is family, right? And so we all know what that means. It means that introduction should be one mm-hmm. we're willing to make. Once you have that leadership in this space, right? And, and you have women, and you have women of color um, in your organization. And let's say they, they are coming in uh, at, at a director or VP level, uh, ensure that you are setting them up for success. Meaning it doesn't just begin and end in the first 100 days. It shouldn't stop in the first six months. There should be plans in place. Too many organizations have what we call the leaky bucket effect. They get great talent in their bucket, but they have holes mm-hmm. in their bucket And then all of a sudden, within a few months, they're gone because they looked around and realized you sold them a lemon. You weren't just working on them. You were not just that you were trying to work on them, but rather you weren't willing to work on yourself. You have to show that authentic and real change and do it before they get there. 
So make sure that that training is taking place before the person walks through the door and don't have it be just because we're welcoming a, a, a new leader of color because that also is going to fly, fall flat. And this all ties back to that cultural competency, that commitment beyond just the moment and that grace because you're going to slip up, you're going to do something wrong, but are you willing to get back up and say, we're committed to this. So look, we figured out what doesn't work. Let's go try it uh, a few more times and find out what does. That's great. Uh, thanks, Ashley. Um, so I'm going to wrap it up with one last question for you. And that is, how do we maintain positive momentum looking ahead? Allyship. But there, there's a word before allyship that's been missing here that uh, has kind of been creepily in the distance here. And that's performative allyship, right? I We've got to get away from performative allyship. We have to get beyond being allies in the moment when the cameras are on or, um, or when, you know, the month is, is exciting to celebrate. We have to show up for those causes 365 days of the year. As an ally, I need you there more than 30 days yeah. of the year. Performative allyship has caused more setbacks than we can count. And it is the reason why we can't really see the true movement we want. So in order to have that positive momentum going forward, forward, we have to get rid of the performative allyship and replace it with the allyship that really is centered on the type of action before the type of noun. And by that, I mean, if you call yourself an ally, you must be able to point to what you've done before you can say who you are. Allyship must be a verb before it can be a noun. And that's just as simple as it is. We have to show up in those tough moments as well. In fact, those are the very moments where it matters most. That's when allyship really shines. And that's the type of positive momentum uh, for it that we need. That's great. Well, listen, Ashley, thank you so much. Thank you for all of the work you do with our clients uh, and within Bernstein. You know, we, we appreciate it. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Claire. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more on Bernstein's Endowment and Foundation Advisory Services, please see the link to our blogs in this episode's description. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please go to the iTunes store, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts to subscribe and rate us. Also, please email us with your thoughts, questions, and feedback to insights at Bernstein.com and be sure to find us on Twitter at Bernstein PWM. Thanks, everyone. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.